Hey Revelers, guess what today is? It is April 12th and a year ago tomorrow is when I announced to the world through the trailer that a new podcast was coming. So thank you for spending a whole year with me here at Revel Revel. I really appreciate it. More about that at the outro. Today's guest is Kate Clifford Larson. She's a historian and a scholar, and she's all about women and women's histories. And it is pretty cool what she and other historians are doing to make us more aware of people and movements that we should know about and get involved with. So here's Dr. Kate. Hello, and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble, and today I have a historian. Oh my God. I kind of feel very special right now. I will be talking to Kate Clifford Larson about her life's work. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for accepting. I always start off with how we know each other, even if we don't, because there's some way we got connected because, you know, this whole serendipitous thing about how people Mm -hmm. know each other is fascinating to me. So I was working at a little bookstore here in the tiny town of Conifer, Colorado with Catherine Alfage. And she met you when she was living or maybe she never met you. I don't even know yeah. that story very well. I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I'm not sure if I met her. I must have met her. <laughs> She's best friends with a good friend of mine. So, <laughs> Okay. And that's how you, but somehow you guys stayed in touch, which I think is awesome. Right. So, but I haven't talked to her in quite some time, but anyway, she's, she's pretty wonderful. She is, and she is a faithful Revel Revel listener. So a little shout out to Catherine for this connection. So you live in Massachusetts, Yes, right? yes. And you have always lived in Massachusetts? You grew up there and everything? I grew up in Maine, and I left for college and came to Boston and went to Simmons as an undergrad. And then I just stayed afterwards and went on and got my MBA at Northeastern University got married, went back to Simmons, got a master's, then get my PhD in University of New Hampshire and raised my family here in Massachusetts. So all my family's still back in Maine, but I live here. Okay. So tell me what Kate was like as a little girl or, you know, budding historian. How did, how did your life unfold that took you down this path to uh, do what you do? So I was actually talking about this recently, so it's a flood of memories that have come back. So I feel really lucky. I grew up in Lewiston, Maine, and my father was an attorney. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, There were four of us in the family. And my dad, like many lawyers, are budding historians. (laughs) And Mm. we used to, he used to take us all over the place and we'd explore you know, different historic sites or go trekking along and look for, uh, you know, little arrowheads. There were always stories he was telling and he was always reading books about history. So it was like in our, in our family culture. 
so I, you know, and I just was fascinated by history, family history, stories about the community. It just was something as a kid, I just was always interested in. And was there a particular period or person that you were interested in as a young person? No, I just was really curious about everything. There were a couple of things. One is I, I come from a, a long line of very strong women. Those women's stories have been passed down in the family, both sides of my family, my mother's family, my father's family. So I always had an affinity to history about women. But of course, back in those days, back in the you know 60s, 70s, there wasn't much. And also, even early on, I was interested in African-American history. Now, maybe it was because of what was on TV during the 1960s with the civil rights movement, because we watched a lot of that. I remember it vividly. Or so one other thing is I love to search through all the old stuff in my family attic, home attic. Mm -hmm. And one day I stumbled across a very large tintype of an African-American man. And there were there was like one black family in Lewiston at the time. I, I I'm not being totally accurate, but seriously, maybe there were three black families in in Lewiston. I'm not sure. And I thought it was unusual. Why did we have a, a tin type of an African American man in our attic? Well, yeah. I I don't know. I just kept it tucked away, and I thought about it often. I brought the photograph with me to my defense for my dissertation and I still didn't know who the man was <laughs> an aunt had said to me oh he was a friend of your grandfather's and I could never figure out who it was and then by it was just serendipity I met a woman who was researching the African-American communities in the state of Maine awesome and I showed her the picture and she said oh my goodness that's John Nichols and he was a formerly enslaved person who escaped on the Underground Railroad and ended up in Maine. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny how things happen. So anyway, I donated the photograph to the Maryland Maine Historical Society and they have it there and they can, they tell his story. That's amazing that she was able to identify him just from a picture. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's just blowing my mind. So I grew up in Philadelphia too. I didn't say that, even though Catherine and I didn't know each other till here in Colorado. And so, of course, you know, we have that connection. And I know what you're saying about, you know, like going through family stuff, especially with strong women, you know, Irish Catholic, but I was born in 69. And so I guess I'm a little bit younger than you. Yep. I mean, Black people were everywhere on the TV in growing up for me, it felt like just, I mean, the seventies just had a lot of it, which was really good. But the first thing I remember about seeing is probably roots. And I'm like, why am I, why am I watching this? <laughs> I was so young and it was so horrific. And I don't yeah. think my, my family was very good at communicating. They were just like, this is important. You need to watch this. And that was <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, so anyway, okay, so back to your growing up. So it was the history and the stories that you were interested in. So does that mean that you were a big reader of that kind of thing when you were little? A reader? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, we had books all over our house. My dad just read all the time. And so it, it, you know, we just all read all the time. We'd go to the library constantly and take books out of the library we had our little library cards as early as we could possibly get them, I think. So that was a big part of our lives. So when you 
entered into college? You were already a declared history major. You knew that's what you were going to do, or how did that unfold? I had taken an economics class in high school, and I loved it. So I decided to major, double major in economics and history. So that's what I did. And I had fabulous economics professors and history professors in Simmons. So I, I, you know, I left college loving both subjects, but to get a job, I needed to focus on the economics part of my education. And that's why I went on to get my MBA. Okay. And then, so you're, you're getting your MBA. When do you start working on Harriet? So it's, uh, I got out of Simmons at 1980. I finished my MBA in 86 and um, I went part-time at night to get the MBA. And I did that for uh, six years. I worked for a little investment bank in Boston and it was a it was a great job and i had a fabulous boss but my passion wasn't with it i didn't feel it and i got married and i had two little children and and i was thinking you know i don't uh, one of the things about investment banking at least back in the 80s in these companies we would go to meetings and i would be the expert in the particular industry the company we were visiting mm-hmm. but i was always asked to take the notes at the meeting uh, yeah. So, and my boss was great. He'd go, no, 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 no. I'll take the notes. And he was, he was fabulous. But I just thought, you know, when I'm 60 years old and I'm 62 now, I don't want to be at a meeting <laughs> taking the notes. And it was just sort of like a, it was just a, a way for me to recognize that I did not have passion for that, that industry, that job. So I'd always loved history. And I said to my husband, I think I want to leave and go and get a degree in history and maybe teach in high school or something. He's like, go ahead. So I started it. And at Simmons, I went back to Simmons in 1993 and started their their history and gender program. And I just got hooked and I had to go on and get my PhD. So it was when you decided to get your PhD that you decided I have to focus on something to write about. Is that how it happened? I already knew. I When I was at Simmons, uh, the first couple of weeks of classes, I was taking history classes with a couple of different professors. And one of them I had had as a professor back in the 1970s. He was still there. His name was Mark Solomon, is Mark Solomon. And I, I just wanted to take another class with him. And the only thing he was offering at the graduate level was an African-American history course. And I didn't think I was really interested in African-American history. I was single-minded. I was going back for women's history only. That was it. You know, I was just so ridiculously stupid, <laughs> and <laughs> to be honest. And, um, but I wanted to take a class with him. So I took the class. In two weeks, I knew that's what I wanted to study was African-American history and women's history together. At the very same time, my daughter was seven years old and she was in second grade. And in Massachusetts, they start having them read a lot of these little biographies about American Mm -hmm. heroes. And she brought home a little biography of Harriet Tubman. And I knew about Harriet Tubman, but I didn't know much. But anyway, we read this little book and I thought, oh, this is such a cool story. And I went to look for an adult biography And the only thing available were two from the 19th century and one written in 1943. And I went to my professors and I said, wow, this is unbelievable. And they're like, that can't be true. She's famous. You know, there must be another biography of her. And there wasn't. So I thought I want to work on a biography. 
And they recognized the project was really huge and big. And they said, you should go on and get your PhD and do it instead for your PhD. So I wrote my master's thesis on some, uh, some other women. And then I went on to get my PhD at the University of New Hampshire. And Tubman was my dissertation topic. I went there. I told them that's what I wanted to do. And they were very excited. And it worked out really great. So before we talk any more about Harriet, let's go back to when you said that you were really stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, you wanted to focus on just women in general. Who were you more sort of drawn to before you encountered African-American studies? So I had read The Diary of a Midwife. Oh, yeah. Uh, about Martha Ballard, the midwife in Maine. And I had the attraction to the story because it was Maine. And the story was so amazing. And I just thought, oh, that's what I want to do, colonial women. And then when I started at Simmons, I moved more into the 19th century. And as a side note, for years and years and years and years and years, every time I went to a bookstore, a used bookstore, or my husband and I were out antiquing, I would always look for old diaries. Oh. And so I would buy old diaries of women from the 19th century or early 20th century. I had tons of them. I had a lot in my house. And so I had this reservoir of material and I just wanted to know more about the context of the lives of those women. So that's where I was coming from when I went into the women's history program. And my world was white and I was just thinking, well, I was just thinking women in general. I wasn't, I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway, that was my, you know, I just wasn't thinking beyond, I just wanted to do women. Thank goodness for Simmons and Mark Solomon. <laughs> so it's funny because it sounds like you were just interested in what was out there, what you could get your hands on. And then you end up tackling a project where it's so hard to get concrete documentation that it's it's mind boggling. The, the leaps that you had to go through to, it seems to put together, I've got a copy behind me of Harriet, um, you know, the one you have over your shoulder. And I kept picturing as I read it, what your world must have looked like with notes and stickies <sighs> and oh my gosh. And you had little kids running around the house and you try to keep all this. And I, I can't imagine how you kept it all straight. Well, you know, I have to give my husband a tremendous amount of credit because he was so supportive and he would take the kids like on weekends so that I would just have concentrated time to, to work. And honestly, my kids grew up feeling that Harriet Tubman was a third child in the family. <laughs> Seriously, we would go on trips and I would do the research or go to places where she passed through or lived or whatever. So she was just part of our lives. And and um yeah, and there were lots of sticky notes and documents copied from archives, lots of them, lots of them, lots of them. So, yeah. you know, when I, I read, I don't normally read the acknowledgments, you know, until sort of the end. But in this case, I did because A, it's in the front and then B, because I was like, well, I wanted to know how you got interested. And, and it doesn't say that. And then after I was done, I went back to the acknowledgments because then you see the staggering scholarship that it took to do all of this. And I thought, oh yeah, let me look at this acknowledgments again. But it was a long list of names of people who had yeah. helped you. And so how long did you actually work on it? It was 
Well, the idea came to me in 1993, but I didn't really start on it till 95, the fall of 95. So it was eight years from beginning to publishing the the biography. And then over the past 18 years, I still research her life every single day. I, you know, I Google her. I follow up on, you know, I have this little tickler. It isn't a little file. It's a tickler file of things to research when I have some downtime. And so I am constantly adding to the, the, the vast amount of research that is coming out, the documents, the primary sources that are being uncovered about her. And there's a lot more to be known since my book came out. And I've worked for the National Park Service as a consultant for years and years and years. And I recently published a new volume for them with much of the new research about her life in that volume. So at least it's getting recorded and it's showing up in exhibits and, you know, public history initiatives. So the information is getting out there. Yeah. Well, give us a little tidbit then of a a major revelation since the book. So since the book has come out, we found out more about her rescue missions on the Underground Railroad, uh, more about her family, which is really important for me because when I started the project, there were a couple of questions that I wanted answered. And I had no illusions that I would find much. I just was hoping to answer a few things. I wanted to know who her family was and who did she love. Oh, I like that. Because it seemed, you know, as a woman, I have sisters, I have a brother, parents, cousins that I love. Who who, who were the people in her life that she loved that were family and then like family? And then, you know, like who was her best girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Who, you know, who did she who did she love? Why did she rescue those particular people? And when I started the project, I still was in the the myth thing. I didn't know what parts of her story were myth, which parts were true. And so I thought she made the 19 trips and rescued 300 people. And it turned out it wasn't that and that she had gone all through the south, you know, Alabama and everywhere. And that's not true. She only went to Maryland. And she rescued only people that she knew and loved, which, of course, makes sense. Hello, you know, would you go out and and rescue people that you don't know and go places you don't know all by yourself if you still had people you loved enslaved that you needed to rescue first? Yeah. (laughs) So that didn't occur to me until I started doing the research. But I was glad that I started off with those simple questions. You know, who was she as a woman and who were the loves in her life? You know. Did she have a crush on a boy? I mean, just because she was an enslaved person doesn't mean that when she was a teenager, she didn't have a crush. So I know those sound ridiculous questions to ask, but after reading all those diaries of all those women and seeing the interior lives of women, I just had these simple questions. And then it turned out to be so much more and to be able to find her family, name them, find the people that she loved and name them and um, elevate their stories was really important, really important. And I have to give a lot of credit to my professors. They just, they helped drive that and, you know, guide me through that whole process. No, I think that's really smart to, I mean, obviously it wasn't just an academic thing. You really cared about those two questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, when everyone thinks back about say the diary of Anne Frank, they think of the conditions and, and the Nazis and all that stuff, but they also think about this is just a girl 
doing girlish things and putting up pictures of, you know, matinee idols on her wall <laughs> that make her human and make it relatable. And so I think that's really smart to take it from that point of view. Right. Yeah. So I think that's great. So what did it do to you as a person, as you're going through and learning all of this, how did you change? So of course it was an, an education intellectually and emotionally because I, while I had learned about slavery and enslavement in my courses in, in, you, you know, the university, it wasn't until going through those documents, those handwritten records in Maryland, talking about enslaved people as property, that it really hit hard. And the treatment and the lack of the ability to determine their own lives and to see children being sold away from their mothers, you know, just horrible stuff. So it changed me. It did, you know. So I, I have very little patience for people who don't understand, which isn't fair of me because I had a learning curve, but I, I'm very short-tempered these days, um, especially, uh, I'm going to get political, with the way the, the world has changed and racism is, um, it seems to be so accepted in some communities. I, it's just, it's infuriating and it drives me crazy. So the more I can talk about Harriet Tubman as this incredible, brilliant, genius woman who was denied an education, denied so much, and the more people learn about her, then I hope they can go on this learning curve as well. Yeah, and I think it's, it's totally understandable that you get sort of upset and riled up about it because, you know, my whole life. As I said, you know, I was little when I saw Roots. So my whole life, I feel like I've been exposed to this, obviously a lot more independent learning than school learning because we know what, how schools just gloss over a lot of things that they don't want to deal with. Even though I've done tons of learning about this stuff, but I still learn a lot of things through your book, especially to see why they were so against being sold somewhere else because just let us keep our families together. Come on. Everything else you've taken away, just let us keep our families together. And I thought that that really hit home for me more so even in the roots, because honestly, I haven't revisited. It's too horrific. So I haven't revisited since I was little and I've seen a lot of movies. I've read a lot of books, but somehow your book really hit home in that area for me. And then the movie too, that was really well done. So let's talk about how the movie came about and how they contacted you or what that all, how that unfolded, because I can imagine you're like, you're working on some other project. And then someone says, Hey, let's make a movie about Harriet. You're like, okay, here we go to that path. I was uh, contacted by one of the producers and they wanted to know if I was available to consult. I had heard that they were making this movie. It had been going around for a couple of years and they had a script by Gregory Allen Howard, who wrote Remember the Titans. And oh, he had yeah. written the script back in the 1980, uh, 1990s, like 93 or something. So it was terribly outdated. So they got in touch with me in 2018, I think. So they, they needed help. And so they asked me if I would consult with the director, who was Casey Lemons, and she was rewriting the script. 
So that's how I said, sure. You know, I, I wish they had optioned my book and they were doing it on that, but they already had the script. So I thought, well, what the heck, it'll be fun. And um, the script needed a lot of work. And Casey did a great job reworking the script. She really brought Tubman to the front of the film. It wasn't as obvious in the beginning. And she brought that uh, womanhood to it. The, you know, there are so many moments in that film, you know, the hugs, I just want to say that the hugs that everybody gives each other, oh, that made me melt, really, because that's the truth. Just everyone hugged each other. They were so desperate to, to be together. And so, you know, there were things like that, that I, I think that Casey did an amazing job with. I push back. I mean, it isn't totally historically accurate. However, I don't think there's one thing in that film that is not historically accurate to somebody. There are characters in there that are not real to Tubman's experience, but they were real at the time. So, so they were like an amalgam of different people pushed into one character for. Right. Right. Um, A lot of people had a problem with um, Bigger Long, who was the black slave catcher, Mm -hmm. but they were a fact of life. They were, there were black slave catchers. And then, you know, they they kind of reworked the Brodus family who enslaved Tubman and her family. They, you know, they fudged some of those children and scenes. But as Casey, you know, and I, I push back on every historical inaccuracy. And she's like, you know, this is this is Hollywood and this yeah. is a film and we've got two hours to tell this and we need to keep the momentum going. And then I I learned so much too, because when you do like a two hour film, you can't have five people named John. You have to switch up the name. So simple things like that, that I learned. So I'm like, well, why don't you call that person their real name? And they're like, we can't because we have three Johns already. We can't have another one. So simple things like that. And then, you know, just personal preferences that a director feels about a project and that went into it. I think Casey Lemons had tremendous instincts and I think she did a great job. Well, I thought the movie was fabulous. And besides the cast that I loved, the thing I think I liked most about it was the music and the singing, the spirituals and stuff. And so please tell me that those were at least somewhat historically accurate. So those were historically accurate. They did have her sing, we call it the goodbye song, but it's Bound for the Promised Land. It was a song that Tubman did use to call out to people to, to, to say, okay, it's safe to come out of hiding. Or she would change the tempo or change the words, and they would know that it wasn't safe to come out. So they, they modified that a little bit, but it's there in the film. And at the last scene of the film, they have Tubman with on the Combi River raid and she is stand on the boat and waiting for the people to come and they're not coming. And so she starts to sing, wait in the water. Well, actually she didn't sing that at that time, even though it's a beautiful song and it fits perfectly there. She sang another actually popular show tune to get them to come and uh, run. But, uh, you know, those were directorial decisions and I think they worked beautifully and left the, the movie ending on a really wonderful note. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to totally fan girl out about one thing before I leave the subject of the movie. Did you get to go to the premiere and meet any of the cast? I did. <laughs> Talk about fan girl. Oh my gosh. 
So I totally love all of them, but I love Leslie Odom Jr. so much. So I I just met him briefly, but I love Cynthia Revo, and I got mm-hmm. to have pictures with her, and I just think Aww. she's fabulous. <laughs> oh well, she's so you, beautiful, and she's so tiny. She's oh, yeah, so she's tiny, tiny, very yeah. tiny. She's just like Tubman, tiny like Tubman, but right, fierce but and strong. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. exactly. Yep. So before I leave Harriet, anything else you want to say about the whole experience or the movie or anything? So I just feel really fortunate because when my book came out, there was starting to be a lot more interest in Tubman and the National Park Service had made a commitment to trying to figure out if they should have a national park in her honor. So I was brought on as a consulting historian and I feel so lucky because I helped go through and was part of that whole process. And now we have two national parks in her honor, one in Auburn, New York, and one in Dorchester County, Maryland. And I think her story, there's more to the story to tell and everybody is working on making that happen. And I can't wait till she's on our $20 bill. Yeah. So what do, what do you think about the holdup on that? So um, this is what I know. The design was pretty much done when Mr. Trump took office and they put it on hold. And so it's it sat on a computer, basically, the design. So now I would imagine they're working on it. I suspect, I'm feeling that there's going to be an announcement sometime soon that it's it's on its way. Of course, it takes a long time to finally get it into circulation. It's so complicated how a new bill gets put out in the world and blah, blah, blah. But I think we're going to see the design and some dates probably coming very soon. Her bicentennial is in March of 2022. So I suspect we're going to hear something before that happens. Oh, and they might wait to that to launch it then too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. That makes I'm sense. hoping. Let's, let's hope. Yeah. So then what happened with your life after you finished working on the book and the book published? Back to you and your story. So I started you know, doing a lot of consulting work and teaching part-time and um, just cobbling together a career. And then in 2005, I decided to start working on a biography of Mary Surratt. And as I said, every day I do a little research on Harriet Tubman. And one day I had Googled her name and um, this Surratt Museum came up on the Google and they were conducting a tour to Harriet Tubman sites on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And I thought, who is this Mary Surratt museum? So I read about her and I thought, wow, what a crazy story. And there were only a couple of older biographies written about her. And so I looked into it and I thought, Oh, I'm going to do this biography. And um, Mary Surratt was accused of being part of the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. And she was hanged for her role And I thought, oh, that poor woman, they hanged her and she was innocent because a lot of people believe that and said that. So I got the book contract. And then about three months into the research, I realized she was guilty. She Mm -hmm. was very, very guilty. And that was a hard project because I did not like her at all. So I, I went through that project and now I, I will be careful on all my choices because I don't want to end up with a woman I don't like. So why didn't you just say, okay, she's not who I thought she was and maybe push it aside and move on to something else then? Oh, because I'm a historian. I'm supposed to like distance myself and I should be able to even research about people I don't like. 
it was it was a challenge. Yeah. And I took the challenge. And I'm glad that I did because there was information about her. I, I felt people needed to know that she was guilty and not to leave the myth out there that she was this innocent, poor woman who was horribly abused by these men at the trial and they hanged her because they were mean. That's not true. She was guilty and they hanged her because she was guilty. You know, there's a, that unlikable, untrustworthy main character. Can't say protagonist, actually. But right. so does she fall into that sort of category? And you said, well, she still has a story I, that deserves telling. Is that where you were coming from? Yes. And because I was trained as a, a woman's historian to, to research the lives of women, there's so much there about the interior of women's lives. And they're not all good people. You know, we'd like to think that women are always so good. But yeah, there were criminals that were women back then too. And um, she was manipulative and she was really smart. She was very smart. And so was her mother. So she, you know, she was a smart woman. She wasn't a one dimensional caricature. She was a real woman who made decisions that cost her her life. And so that's what I latched onto. And that's how I wrote the book. So what does it mean to be a women's historian? Can you define that for us? So my, my perspective is to put women at the center of a, a story, not just at the center of their own story, but it's in the context of a moment in time. And when you do that, when you put women or a woman in the middle of that, at the center of that story, the story looks a little bit different. So that's what I do. Like with uh, Rosemary Kennedy, the, the, the last book I did, so everybody knows the Kennedy story. Everybody knows that Rosemary had a lobotomy. But when you drill down and you tell her story and you show her at the center of that family and all the people around her circling around her, but you tell that family story through Rosemary's experience, that family looks very different to me anyway. And if readers are to believe, be believed, they feel the same way. So while you know, it's, it's a complicated family and her parents were, didn't always make the best decisions. Her father was a lout. When you put Rosemary at the center of that family, you see the parents differently. You see her siblings differently and that they loved her and they made decisions in their lives based on their love for her, their experiences with her and based on what happened to her. And I feel that if Rosemary what happened to Rosemary never happened. I'm not sure a Eunice Kennedy would have gone on and started the Special Olympics. Right. Would we yeah. have legislation, Americans with Disabilities Act, would that have happened as quickly, which didn't happen very quickly, but you know, Ted Kennedy was so devoted to making sure that happened with other senators. You know, and he signed he pushed through, you know, hundreds of pieces of legislation dealing with mental health and disabilities. Would those people have been that way if it hadn't been for Rosemary? I don't think so. So here's this one disabled woman who really changed the world for all of us. So putting her at the center of that story changes, for me, the way we need to look at the Kennedy family. Right. And I love that approach because hopefully everyone is the hero of their own story and the main character of their own story. No one wants to be the the side character in their own story. <laughs> it's surprising how many biographies out there of women that they're really the side story. Yeah. 
you explain how you got interested in the Mary Surratt. Yep. What was the after from her story before you got involved in Rosemary? How did you, what, what was your life progression going on? It, it was another serendipitous thing. So I, I finished the um, Mary Surratt book and it was being edited and it was going to be, you know, published soon. And I'm sitting at home and I'm reading the newspaper. And in January of 2008, there was a obituary. It wasn't 2008. Well, anyway, it was obituary. I saw an obituary for Rosemary and I, uh, I read it. There was a picture of her, a beautiful picture of her. And it was uh, this beautiful three-paragraph obituary in the Boston Globe about her. It just hit me. It just hit me. I thought, well, this is tragic. But, and I knew about Rosemary. I had read several of those Kennedy biographies. But there was just something about the photograph. And I just tucked it away in my head and a couple of weeks later, my agent called me and she said, I have your next book project for you. And I said, Rosemary Kennedy. <laughs> and she said, yes. No way. <laughs> yeah. And so it was 2005 because I was still working on um, Mary Surratt. So in it, I went to the Kennedy Library, which is just, you know, 10 miles from my house and realized that there was material there that convinced me because I originally thought, well, I'll just do an article for like the Boston Globe magazine or something. Mm -hmm. But then I realized there was enough material there that I could, I, I, I read her letters and I realized that I had enough of her voice that I could craft a biography using her voice. So, so unless I'm mishearing you, it sounds like you happened upon Harriet because of that one professor you just wanted to be with, you know, in his class. And then you happened upon Mary Surratt and then you happened upon Rosemary Kennedy. So are you consciously saying, I'm going to wait until the universe brings me these people to work on or, or what's the thought process there? No. Um, I'm always scanning for another woman to write about. Those just happen to be weirdly, <laughs> just by chance, but I do look for other women to write about. And I have a stack of, you know, women that I'd be interested in writing about, but some of them just, it's not the right time for me. It doesn't seem like the right time just in the publishing world, because frankly, I need to write and, and, you know, sell books. I'm not doing this just because I, I uh, love to write and not earn any money. I have to mm -hmm. earn money doing that. Right. But I, you know, I, if I just don't feel I could pull off a book, then I put that file away and let it sit. Right. Because the circumstances could change and everyone could suddenly be interested in a person. And then you're like, oh, here we go. I have, I have stuff on. Right. Me. Okay. Or I could be in a certain place in my life that all of a sudden that particular woman's story means more to me. It hits me in a different way than it did five years ago or 10 years ago. Like I've always known about Fannie Lou Hamer. And she's been on my mind since the Rosemary book came out, but I wasn't sure. I, I was filled with some doubt and, but she kept, I feel like she just kept tapping me on the shoulder and finally I just committed and I'm glad that I did. And so you're working on Fanny right now? 
Yeah, I'm wrapping up the manuscript now. Uh, we're editing it, and um, it'll be out in October. I'm really glad that you're working on her because with uh, the death of John Lewis, everyone was talking about him and reading his story. And so it'd be good to have a big female presence around the same time be discussed. Right. And once again, putting her, I mean, there have been other biographies of her that, you know, she's the center of those biographies. But I, in reading those other biographies, I just, I have a different way of writing a biography and researching a biography. And I just felt I had a contribution to make. So every book since uh, my Tubman book was my dissertation. So it's a little bit more academic, mm-hmm. but I'm, I've been moving my writing more towards writing for a general audience. And so this will be for a general audience. I mean, academics could read it too, because it's heavily researched, but I try to write it. I'm not trying to write for my dissertation committee anymore. So it's, it's different. And I've done a tremendous amount of research. And there are, there are these typical stories about her that have been carried on since, you know, since 1962 about her that actually aren't true. Oh. And so I've changed those. And not that they weren't bad stories. It's just I needed to know her very personally. And I needed to know her family where she was born, how she was born, what the family dynamic was so that I could build up and create this, this narrative about Fannie Lou Hamer so that everybody understands where she comes from, that she didn't just come out of nowhere in 1962 as a fully grown woman. Right. So you, you said that you had two sort of questions and goals going into the Tubman story. What were your uh, thesis points for Fannie? So I added a question for Fannie Lou Hamer. So one, I wanted to know about her family. It, she's, the story is she was the 20th child of, of sharecropping parents, you know, and, and it was strug- they struggled and struggled and struggled. And it was always, I was the 20th child. And her grandmother was an enslaved person who had 20 children in slavery and then three after slavery. This was a, a constant, it's like almost a trope in her life story. But actually, that is not true. She was the 20th child, but there were four babies that died in the four years before she was born. And so for me, that that kind of changes how, so everybody said, well, Fannie Lou was always so much a favorite of her mother's. Well, now I can see why, because four babies died before she was born. Um, so it's details like that. And then, of course, it wasn't her grandmother. It was a great grandmother who was enslaved that had the 20 children. To me, that's a valuable story because it's something that in Black women passed down generation after generation, these stories of enslavement, sexual abuse and assault and giving birth to babies of their enslavers, et cetera, how these stories are passed down to protect their daughters, you know, and Fannie Lou's mother carried a gun into the cotton fields to protect her daughters. You know, these are things that I want people to understand. So I go through that kind of story and, and, and relay that so that they understand Fannie Lou as a baby is born special and the family struggles, but yeah. So anyway, that's just one of many, many things about researching her life that I'm bringing to light the music in her life. She grew up in the Mississippi Delta and that's the, the birthplace of the blues 
So everyone talks about how she sang spirituals all the time. Well, if you listen to her, you can hear the blues. So I write about the blues and all the juke joints and the, the blues bars that she went to and danced and listened and drank and, and did, did um, snuff and she did, uh, you know, tobacco on a stick. You know, these things, she was a real woman and she didn't just go to church all the time and pray and sing and sing and sing. She had a life. She was a real woman who had many different facets to her person. And also that they, you know, a lot of people write about how all of a sudden in 1962, she becomes aware of the civil rights movement and she's going to try to register to vote. Well, actually, for 10 years, she had been active in trying to register to vote or to get people interested in the civil rights movement. So those are details that people need to know, especially for young people today who are who want to be part of something, who want to struggle and fight and and make a difference in the world. They don't have to wait till they're 40 years old. They can do it now and they can and find mentors in the community and find resources. And and we as allies out there or, you know, any young people, you need to to build a community around you to support you to move forward for your vision. So, you know, this old story of Fannie Lou Hamer, all of a sudden, she's just sick and tired and she's had enough and decides to make a change one day. Uh-uh. It had been coming for a really long time. She was already a leader in the community before she made it to the national stage. Well, exactly. And I... Oh, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn. I don't mean to. You know, when I hear you talk about that, I think, well, I'm kind of a historian in a way because I care so much about like the how things happen and what led up to it and what are the connections because no one does anything in a vacuum. They have the community. And, you know, how do you do this one step and then this other step and this other step? And how does it all add up to a movement? You know, and that's why I pointed you to the Girl Trek one, because I love that they've built this movement. I am now I'm really excited about the Fannie Lou Hamer book. I can't wait. So you said it's coming out later this year? October, year? right. October. October. Okay. Well, I just can't believe you had time to talk to me about this now, because I'm sure you're the crunch between now and October. <laughs> So looking back through your life and these four women, what are the the through lines and what connects them to each other and all that good stuff? I think that one of the through lines is they were always underestimated, that they had their own brilliance and genius. It wasn't all the same. And so for me, we need to recognize brilliance and genius in all its different forms Harriet Tubman could not formally read or write letters, but she was literate and literate in ways that we're not literate today. Uh, Mary Surratt was a wicked person and she was a criminal. She was brilliant though, and she was smart and she made her own decisions and she made her own choices. And she, you know, affected change tragically in the wrong way. And Rosemary Kennedy, as I said, you know, in her own way, she changed that family. And because of that, we are a better world. We are. And Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, you know, same thing. Didn't have a Harvard education, but she was smarter than most people. And she had a, a literacy in, 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 in being able to connect with so many different people from so many different places and had this 
this underpinning that was, uh, it's just hard to capture, but we need to celebrate everyone and, and support people who rise to the top on their own, who emerge as leaders. When they emerge or they're starting to emerge, we've got to stand behind them. We can't knock them down. And all these women faced people knocking them down. Absolutely. That is a very good point. So what do you have in common with these four ladies? I haven't really thought about that. I don't know. I just, um, a, a passion. I have a passion and they had passion. And so I, I have a passion for telling these stories and I'm not going to stop. And I, I will take the critical reviews and I will keep moving on because I know what I'm doing is right and good. And I need to, I just need to. Critical reviews of you and your writing or they saying that you should be. Yeah. That, you know, if when, yeah, whenever I get a review on a book, you know, if it's a bad review or not so great review, Oh, it stings. It really stings, but I'm, I believe in what I'm doing and I, I'm just going to keep moving on. And I'm sure there will be critics about this book. Definitely. They, they can't argue the historical accuracy. So they come after you personally. Is that what's happening? So they, you know, I'm a really good historian and I, my historical accuracy, there's, I, I can't, as every as my mentors and academic advisors back in the day and my mentors today say the work will speak for itself i've always struggled so with the tubman book as a white woman writing about a, an african american hero i did get some backlash and that's understandable i get that um, i still get it today about when it comes to tubman i expect some of that with the fannie lou hamer book but i can't I can't deny my passion for her story and wanting to tell it. And so there you have it. So it sounds like they're saying that this story should be told by a black woman. Yes, that will be uh, criticism. And there's another book about Hamer coming out in October. My friend Keisha Blaine is publishing a book on Hamer, but it's about Hamer's political life and her, it's framed in a, a political science kind of framework. Okay. Yeah. So it's not really a biography. So I think Keisha and I think the books will be good together. So speaking of the political, uh, I don't know what the word I want is, but Ibram X. Kendi has now formed this new school think tank. I'm not really sure what to call it. They're in Boston. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if, you know, if, if there's some crossover between you and him or his think tank uh, to discuss any of this stuff about, you know, a white person putting out a book in 2021 about uh, a historical black figure. I mean, I don't see a problem, but again, I'm white. So there hasn't been any discussion like that at his, his school. No. And there are other white scholars writing about African-American historical figures. So I know that Kendi is, has this uh, institute at Boston University and his latest book that came out, his co-editor is Keisha Blaine. So I, knew I recognize that her name. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. And Keisha and I have talked about, she's thinking about trying to pull a symposium together either later in the fall or next spring about Fannie Lou Hamer. So you know, it is what it is. And I, I'm, the criticism is, uh, I'm just anticipating it because I know how, I know when the Harriet movie came out, 
there was tremendous amount of criticism because I consulted on the film, but I, you know, it just is what it is. I, I have an expertise and I'm, I just go with it. Right. And you should defend that expertise. So I say you go girl. So is it difficult as a historian and biographer to talk about yourself and think about your own stories? It isn't difficult. It's just, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it only when like you ask, and I I happened to be asked the other day when some students were having a career day and I zoomed with them with some other people in different industries. And so, you know, talking about, well, how did I end up here? And that's, that's what happens, but I don't really think about it too much. Do you keep a diary or a journal and things for other future historians to find about you? No. And it's funny because I tell everybody to do that and I don't do it. (laughs) So why do you tell other people to do it? (laughs) Because I'm the historian. I'm thinking of historians a hundred years from now who want to see those papers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what, what books have you been shaped by that you want to share with others? I was really shaped by the, the diary of a midwife that really, I mean, it set me on this course. Oh God, I, I have this huge office filled with <laughs> books. There are so many, there are so many great historians out there, so many great books about the, so I'm reading, I've been reading the past four years, a lot about the civil rights movement. There's so much amazing work about the civil rights movement. This is something that I think Americans need to pay more attention to read more about because we're revisiting a lot of what we thought was taking left in the past, but it's just been underground and now it's full blown again. And we have, I don't know how many hundreds of pieces of legislation across the country to restrict voters. This is going back to the fifties and sixties. I, you know, this is, this is stunning to me. I think if people understood, we've been here before and we need to stop this now. And um, so there's so much about the civil rights movement that I I hope that people will read. And I mean, John Lewis's biographies are very accessible, but there are so many more out there. I, I could go on it for days and days and days. And of course, slavery, the history of of slavery, there's so much amazing scholarship out there and we need to teach our the country, Americans, but also children in school because they are not learning about the history of of slavery and the pursuit of freedom and the Civil War. We're just not teaching it well because if we taught it the right way, we wouldn't have all these Confederate statues. People wouldn't be marching with Confederate flags, you know, that kind of thing. We really have done a bad job. As a historian, I'm taking blame too. We have not written enough for the public, for the general public so that they can learn this history, the truth, not not the myths. Well, I would agree. And I think for my own education, the period that was the just the worst as far as explanations of what happened was Reconstruction. It was like, well, uh, okay. And then we, there was this uh, period of rebuilding. And then, then that was all it was said. And then we jumped, like, I don't know. I don't know, it probably jumped to World War One in my history class right after that. It was like nothing. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's terrible. So I highly agree. But I see two Ruth Bader Ginsburg things behind you. <laughs> I see her collar and I see the little doll behind you. So do you have a RBG biography that you can recommend? So um, I don't remember the name of it, but the latest one, Ugh, you know, it's here somewhere. Actually, it might be upstairs. 
whatever the latest one, there were two out there. So I shouldn't say the latest one, just either one, just go for it and watch the movie, watch the movie. Oh if you don't gosh. have time to read it, please watch the movie. On the basis of sex was so yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. So she is pretty remarkable. And we don't know. We just remember her as this tiny little older person. But mm. she had this life that was so incredible that brought her to the place that we got to know her. Yeah. So we need to know her before that. Because there are women like that today who are going to be in that place tomorrow. And we need to support them and be behind them and watch them grow and become who they're going to be in the future. So do you ever get a chance to read fiction? Hardly ever. Uh, what I have done, though, especially before I started this intensive research on Hamer, I started listening to fiction, Jasmine Ward. and. Mm. Uh, well, if you heard my thing with Vanessa, you heard me just praise Jasmine Ward up, up and yeah. down. I adore her. Yeah. So books like that, I would put on tape and I would take, we live next to a, a state forest. And so I would go and I would walk and listen on tape and to hear the voices and the, yeah, that's, that's how I do fiction these days is listen to it because I want to be a better writer and historians aren't always great writers. <laughs> We're just not, it's boring. So I'm trying to make it less boring and listening to these amazing writers has helped. Yeah. Well, I have no problem dishing out some recommendations for you, even though I know you don't have time right now, but you can just file it away because you said historians as writers. Uh, I love Philbrick. Oh yeah, that's, oh yeah. I've got, yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And The Heart of the Sea, you know, is mainly about the guys on the ship, right? Right. The women in town and how they, how they lived without their men. I think that if you haven't read that, you will love that part of that book. Yeah, he's um, amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, I always screw up his name, even though I highly love him. Noah Harari, Yuval Harari, the guy from Israel. He does more of like a biological economic history of humankind. Wow. Yeah. Because you like the economic stuff. I think you'd really enjoy it. So Sapiens is just mind blowing. Oh, I'm going to have to remember that. Yeah. When you, when you have time. And then... <laughs> And then here's a fiction one that, have you ever read Alias Grace by Atwood? No, but I've read a couple of her other ones. I used to teach Atwood in one of my women's history classes, but I haven't read that. You taught Atwood. Ooh. Well, one day you'll pick up that book and you will read it and then you will email me and go, oh my God, I want to talk about Alias Grace with you. <laughs> okay. Do not watch the movie. All right. I have feelings very strongly about the movie. Some, in some ways it was good. And it was a mini series movie. So in some ways it was good. In some ways I'm like, no, you screwed that up. So anything else that you want to uh, share with us about uh, what to do and what to read and what to watch before, before your family Hamer book comes out? I just, oh gosh. Well, I mean, the world is so different now. It's a still a little bit of COVID lockdown. So uh, for me, I just can't wait to get vaccinated so I can go hug my grandchildren and my children and all my family and all that friends. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to feel the same way. I just want for people out there that are thinking about, you know, leaving what their career is and trying something new, I say go for it because if you don't try it, you're not going to know and you'll have regrets. And for me, it worked out because I had a support system that enabled me to do it. Not everybody is able to do that. But 
boy, if you've lost your passion for what you do, you've got to find a way to find your passion and, and follow it. Because um, I love what I do every single day. Every single day, I don't have a regret at all. And that's amazing considering the amount of work that you do. <laughs> you know, why would you write about someone who just cloistered themselves away and didn't really interact with so many people like Dickinson? So you don't have so many different characters you have to keep track of. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about her, but I picture if you're living in seclusion and you don't have to juggle so many characters. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, but the richness of, around somebody is what makes their character. So. No, it's impressive. Well, I think I've come up with a, a title for this episode. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Oh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. That's what, yeah, that's yeah. what she said. Yeah. Because you write about those women and you are, I'm sure, not as well-behaved as you're acting right now. <laughs> Once you get your vaccine, you're going to go tear it up, right? Oh my God. It's going to be nonstop for months. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hear you about the hugs. And I think that that really hit home for me when I was watching the movie too, because I was watching everyone hug and I'm like, yeah, how many people have I hugged in over a year? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. I thank you for your time. Oh, one final question. Do you do anything special on March 10th? I know we, you were too busy between when we first started talking and now. Was it Harriet related? What did I do on March 10th? I can't remember. I ha usually have lots of engagements on around uh -huh. uh, March 10th. I don't know what I did this year. I mean, she's always on my mind. Always, always, always. So, you know, I think about it could have been her birthday too. We don't know. We know she was born in March. So we don't know. But anyway. I just think her time has come and it's, it's really great. And having done this for so many years to see her recognition out in the world is just, it's so rewarding. It's so fabulous. She's great. And I can't wait till she's on a $20 bill and everyone will think about her every time they pull money out of their wallet. Yeah. Much better think about her than stupid Jackson. That's for sure. <laughs> Who's going to be tiny, tiny, tiny on the backside of the note. <laughs> Oh, he is? I didn't hear he, that. That's all right. He can be small. That's how he, that's how he should be. Oh, exactly. my goodness. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your hard work and your passion and your scholarship. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Okay, Revelers, I hope you really enjoyed this. Hope you got a lot out of it. Obviously, you can see why I named it what I did. But, you know, at the end when I'm saying that she should write about someone like Dickinson who doesn't have all those side characters to juggle, I really meant that for her sake, for the writer's sake. And then as I listened to this in the editing process, I really thought about how much I appreciate Kate's attention to all of those people who came before, who were contemporaries, friends, lovers, whatever, to the person she's writing about. Because you know what? All of you guys out there in podcast land are that important to me too. I wouldn't be here without you. I have said from the very beginning that everyone should get to tell their life stories and revel in the interesting connections and the universe at play in our lives because I know really freaking interesting people. 
and I want your stories to be told. So A, thank you for listening. B, hopefully you're subscribing, following, and sharing all of this good stuff with others. And lastly, if you are interested in being on the pod, then hit me up. All of the information's on the website, and that's https colon slash slash revelrevel.life. And the website is the best place to see all the show notes and the very cool picture of each guest. And I always talk about my sponsor, BetterHelp. And this is no exception. Obviously, BetterHelp is my sponsor for this and all episodes. But what you might not know is that you can support me another way too. And the show notes, I've got links to all of the books that we discuss on the podcast. And if you follow the link of the book and you buy it through bookshop.org using that link, guess what? You put a little cha-ching in my pocket and uh, be a great thank you to me and to the author or the person who recommended it or whatever. So I hope you do that. Again, thank you for being around for a whole year. We have more interviews coming. We are not stopping yet. So thank you for everything, my revelers. <laughs>